Our text today is taken from the 16th chapter of the very Old Testament book of Leviticus. We'll start reading at verse 20. And when he had made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man." The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. This is God's word. Please be seated. What did we just read? That is a super weird text. It's only three sentences long. Goats are mentioned five times in this text. I told my wife that I was going to need to bring in a live goat as an object lesson, and she said to me, totally deadpanned to me, well, you can probably get the live goat, but where are you going to find a suitable man? (laughs) More nodding than I thought there would be out there today. This text kind of makes us laugh, right? When we look at it, it's so unusual, it's so strange. You kind of can't help but look at it and chuckle at it because everything that's in here is so unfamiliar as to be practically alien. It almost seems random with how unexpected some of the things that are some of these instructions are. The scene is unbelievably alien. There's blood and there's entrails and there's incense and goats. The 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 ritual is unbelievably alien. There's killing and chasing and putting things on goats. The participants are really unusual, very alien to us. There's a high priest in a turban wearing linens doing things to goats. It's an extraordinarily strange scene that gets laid out in front of us. It's weird. But this morning, let's take a minute And actually embrace that weirdness of this scene a little bit. Not do the usual thing where we go through step by step and and talk about how people did Yom Kippur. And we'll talk about some of the things it's pointing to, but not go through the process. Instead, let's just look at this thing and be honest with ourselves and say, this is pretty weird. And then also be honest with ourselves and say, a lot of the things that we do as Christians are pretty weird. When we look at ourselves, what do we really see? When the world looks at us, what do they see? Odd rituals? Lots of superstition? We might not sacrifice goats anymore, but the things that we do still can look pretty strange. What is it that distinguishes the things that we do from the bizarre rituals that we find it easy to chuckle about here because they are so weird. First off, let's take a look at what's actually going on here. This is the event of Yom Kippur. 
and uh, uh, it's the Day of Atonement, in case uh, uh, you, you don't recall the translation. The word for atone is literally referring to covering something over. Whenever we've done something that's wrong or evil, we have that urge to make sure that nobody knows about it. I always think about my little sister. Uh, my mom walked into uh, the living room, and she was carefully smoothing a towel out on the couch. And mom asked her what she was doing, and she said, I colored on the couch, so I hided it. She was, it was a very honest uh, relaying of something that exists deep inside of all of us. We want to hide things from view when, uh, when we've done things that are wrong. We have this innate knowledge that there's something about us that's gross. There's something about us that we don't want other people to see or know about, and we have got to either cover it up or get rid of it. So, in our scene from this text, the priest comes in, and he confesses all of that dirtiness, all of that muck, all of that disease of sin over a goat. And then they take that goat and they treat it like a cruise ship with the coronavirus. They drive it out of the area. They keep it away from any human beings and have it be gone. They try to keep it. They treat it like it's something infectious. They treat it like something disgusting. They make sure it's not near anyone. And in fact, actually, if we go a couple more verses past this text... The high priest even acts the way we might expect a CDC person to act. He get, as soon as the goat's gone, he strips off the garments that he was using to uh, lay those sins on that goat. He immediately bathes and he puts on brand new clothes, right? Everything about this entire uh, ritual of Yom Kippur emphasizes how wretched that sin was, how disgusting, diseased, and maybe contagious uh, this stuff was. I'm going to suggest to you today that even though the rituals have changed, we have not lost this awareness. Even the general public, which is so defensive about its activities, has not lost its awareness of just how sick and disgusting our lives can be, our sins are. But in the absence of multiple goats... They find other ways to deal with it. The ceremony looks super duper weird. And it would be easy to look at it and say, eh, that's superstition that people developed in order to deal with something that they couldn't quite understand. But of course, superstition is developed in the absence of understanding. And its uh, work ends up being meaningless as a consequence. Uh, my aunt was uh, in the Peace Corps. If you've had me for class, you might have heard this story. My aunt was in the Peace Corps, and she was serving in a country called Gabon uh, amongst some tribes called the Fang. And one day there was a commotion in the village that she was working with. Everybody was cramming into the big building in the center of campus, the, uh, the witch doctor's hut. And she asked somebody what was going on, and they said, someone has been bitten by a vampire and is about to die. Well, my aunt is a nerd like me, so this was something she very much wanted to see. She hurried with everybody else into that uh, building at the center of the town, and there was this kind of round room with a big flat table right in the middle. And on that table was a man. The, ma the heels of his feet were touching one end of the table, the tip of his head was touching the other end of the table, 
and his body was a rigid arc over those two points. Those were the only things actually touching uh, the table for this guy. He was so rigid and tense, he had ground his teeth out of his head. They looked at this and they saw, said, vampire. Now, we have an educated group of people here. Who here knows what was it that had actually happened to this guy? I think I heard it, a little louder. Go ahead. Yes, exactly. You've got it. Full points to Twite. Uh, it's, uh, he was in the final throes of tetanus. Now, if you have no information at all about what's taking place, what is going to sound like the more rational explanation for what's happening to this person who's going through this thing that's absolutely horrifying? Are you going to think... That is a person who probably scratched himself on a rusty piece of metal? Or are you going to look at that horror scene and think to yourself, this dude was bitten by a vampire? Between those two suggestions, vampire sure seems like the more rational explanation. It's a horrifying thing that, they're, uh, that they perceive, and so they're doing their best to project their own human wisdom on the thing that's taking place uh, in front of them. In the absence of actually knowing, we invent things that seem like they might explain it or seem like they might work. Think of all the bizarre rituals that we have invented to try to deal with our sin sickness. Instead of driving our sin away, we support causes that we feel really righteous about in which we believe that we are absolutely right and anybody opposing us is unambiguously wrong. Instead of driving sin away, we try to focus on the short list of positive things in our lives and just hope that it's a little longer than the list of positive things in our neighbor's life. Instead of driving sin away, we try to focus on the long list of the faults of others and use that as permission for our own faults. I never really use it as uh, anything other than personal absolution. It's like when I'm driving on the road and somebody, and I'm going the speed limit and someone drives past me. That is now the new speed limit, right? Because if somebody's gonna get pulled over, he's gonna get pulled over. That feels like permission to drive slightly slower than that guy. As long as I'm not getting caught, I feel pretty good about it. Instead of driving sin away, we try to do better. Isn't that a little weird? That uh, trying to do better is actually a way of ignoring our sin. Trying to do better is actually a way of looking at our sin and minimizing it if we do it in the absence of Christ. It's almost as though we're going to a doctor with a broken arm and hoping that he doesn't notice. And as we walk in, you know, we're just, we're trying to hide it when we go in so that he doesn't notice it. And then he, and then he points it out. Uh, it looks like your arm might be broken. It's awfully bent. It's like a right angle. And we say, yeah, well, your arm is bent too. Maybe you have a broken arm. Maybe you should check yourself before you're checking me. Or, you know, they'll say, well, I saw you looking at the previous patient. Their arm looked a little bit bent. Did you tell them they might have a broken arm? Maybe you should have talked to them about that. Or my broken arm is my own personal business and I'm going to handle it the way that I see fit. 
There are arms that are way more broken than this arm in here. Why aren't you dealing with those people? All of these things sound objectively insane. Because, of course, a broken arm is something that you need to have tended to. You need, no, none of us are going to misunderstand the significance of having a broken arm or the need to get some help with that. But we have a break with God. And we invent rituals that allow us to turn to ourselves. Here's the thing, though. This ritual in the Old Testament... It also would have been pure superstition. It would have been pure ritual. It would have been pure meaninglessness if it wasn't connected to Jesus on the other end. When we look at this text, the path to the cross is really obvious. God had a kind of horrifying quarantine plan. Jesus was going to be the goat. We talk about sin being disgusting. Imagine being Christ coming down from heaven, leaving behind the perfection and beauty of heaven to be here in this place, even in the best of circumstances. That would have been a revolting condescension. And yet, he endured bad circumstances, laid in a manger, lived a difficult life, had all of humanity's filth and misery and evil laid on him. Everything that made us repugnant to God. Everything that made us need to be outside his kingdom where his people dwell. That was all laid on Jesus. And he was driven out of the city. And on the cross he carried our sins away. And then he was taken to a place where nobody dwells and laid in a grave. God treated our sin the exact same way that we treat nuclear waste. The residue of sin, death, was stuck in the grave. And when Jesus rose triumphant, alive and perfect, it stayed in the grave. I want to point out something maybe a little bit unusual here. All of the things that we do as Christians, all of the rituals that we engage in, look superstitious. They look a lot like magic spells. And in fact, on their own, they would be. It looks weird to sprinkle water on babies, almost certainly making them cry. Kurtz was good uh, this weekend. Almost, my daughter screamed like I was performing an exorcism. And uh, uh, while everybody in the congregation gawks, at this thing. It's weird that we all file up to the front of the church and then consume bread and wine saying it's body and blood. That looks weird to everybody. It's weird for people to uh, watch us uh, pray and have the pastor say something like, we now bring uh, before the Lord our private petitions and then stand there still and silent that seems strange, and all of it would be strange. All of it would be me meaningless. All of it would be superstitious, except for one factor. They are connected to Christ. They are connected to the cross. They are connected to the word, and therefore they connect us to God. A superstitious act 
is one that we use without any real meaning and without any actual result. That means literally anything that we try to do in our present state, whether it involves goats or not, that is not at the end connected to Christ. But because our faith is grounded in him, we have a confidence that nothing on this earth can provide, that everything that separates us from God has been driven away into the wilderness where no one dwells so that we can dwell with him. Amen.